Okay, if you will turn with me to Mark 9. Once again this week, we're going to kind of be in a couple of different places. Uh, but all the same story, so that's good. Uh, we're going to start Mark 9, we're going to jump over to Mark 10 and cover what may seem like two different things, but they're really not. The other day I asked a question on Facebook and got some pretty interesting answers. Uh, the question was, what is something frivolous that people in the church argue about and why does it seem to matter so much? And there were so many answers that I won't list them all here. We'd be here for a while. Uh, but here's just a few. Here's the very first set that were on there. And remember the key word in the question is frivolous. And these were the answers. Uh, one of the first ones was, who are we supposed to vote for? Something that is frivolously argued in the church. Uh, one of them was, was the universe created in a literal seven days? I assume as opposed to a figurative seven days or however that works out. Uh, one was the color of the carpet. That's one that has been argued about. That's frivolous. The music style, which... I'm sure we're all familiar with sort of those things. Um, this one made me laugh. Can you bring coffee into the worship center? <laughs> I'm hot tea, but it's still, I bring it all the time. Um, and then uh, my own son listed dancing. That's a controversial thing. Because, um, you know, being Baptist and all, we don't dance. Uh, although we do. Anyway. Uh, and then one was the uh, that got listed was the wallpaper behind the choir loft. And I remember that last one because it happened in the church I grew up in. There was a man who, who said it, who had known me since I was a little kid, and was a member of the choir in that church. Uh, and I remember the, the choir loft used to just have sort of a wood paneled finish. Uh, but after some committee meetings, they ended up going with this, uh, like, gold leaf tissue box, Kleenex box sort of look of, of wallpaper on it. And it, it made a bunch of folks really unhappy. Uh, and there ended up being like church business meetings and a good bit of like fussing and arguing over it all. Um, I also remember being a part of a, a big uh, kerfuffle at another church over whether the teenage boys could wear baseball caps in the sanctuary. Uh, like they held meetings and passed resolutions over it. Um, it, it doesn't seem like, doesn't it seem like sometimes the church is just busy worrying and fretting and fussing over all the wrong stuff? You know, we, we get wrapped up in stuff that ultimately, <laughs> ultimately doesn't matter. And we lose sight of the important things. I mean, seriously, when, when Jesus returns, do you think, he will walk into one of our churches and then start complaining about the carpet. Is that how, how you picture it? Or, or the wallpaper? Is Jesus going to have a problem with the wallpaper? Not that we have wallpaper ours as a painting, but like, is that going to be an issue that Jesus is really kind of tore up about? Do you think he'll be shocked at people bringing coffee into the worship center? I know, I know several of you have like different bottles and you know jugs and mugs and different things that y'all bring in. I think Jesus is going to be upset about that. Because I mean, these are, some of these things are truly frivolous. And arguing over such things, though, it's not new in the church. In fact, it seems to have begun with the disciples. 
Only the frivolous things they were arguing about sort of seemed like they might have been important at some level, except for the fact that Jesus told them otherwise. And in the course of how things unfolded in the text we're going to look at today, it, it, you know, he connected all of it as he always did to the kingdom and what the kingdom looked like and what it was supposed to be like. And that's how this part of Mark's story unfolds. So let's dig into the text. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit, so I'll try to let you know where we are. We're going to start in Mark 9, verse 33. Mark 9, 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then skipping down to verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. The salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And then finally, jumping ahead to chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say him, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. May God bless the reading of his word. As we get started in the text, Jesus and the disciples have been out proclaiming the kingdom and just prior to where we pick it up, the story, Jesus had been transfigured before their eyes on the mountain, his clothes becoming radiant and Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking to him. And I've always wondered how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They didn't have name tags back then, so not not sure. But Jesus probably told them who it was when he came down from the mountain. That's always made me curious. Anyway, after that, Jesus then cast out yet another demon and told the disciples of his impending death at which point they headed back to their home base in Capernaum. And apparently along the way, some of the disciples were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Sort of like all the sportscasters these days trying to decide if Tom Brady is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, or if it's Michael Jordan or somebody else. Personally, I think it's Bill Russell. And we can argue about that later if you'd like. Uh, but that's just another matter. The point is that the disciples were fussing about which one of them was the greatest. And we can read this really as a question about which one of them was going to be Jesus' right-hand man. They were looking forward to when Jesus finally seized power and kicked Rome out of Israel and overthrew all of Herod's descendants who were still ruling in that area. And they were wondering which one of them would be his second-in-command, his uh, his lieutenant, if you want to call it. That's, that's what they were arguing about. Who was the greatest? And it's clear that while they thought it was important enough to argue about, they were sort of embarrassed about it, it seems, when Jesus brought it up, almost as if they knew better. But isn't that how we are? Don't we get into arguments with each other and other believers over stuff that if Jesus asked about it, we would probably be embarrassed that that's what we were talking about or arguing about. I mean, when Jesus returns, is he really going to be upset about baseball caps? Is that the thing that's going to really grab his attention? Having been a youth pastor for almost 20 years, I know that just getting teenagers involved is sort of a big deal. And I was never worried about whether they wore caps in the building or not. It just never bothered me. Um, I always thought of Jesus as a come-as-you-are sort of savior. My concern was always, are they learning about Jesus? Are they following him in their daily lives? Are they growing to be more like him? And when some of the older folks who grew up in a different world would gripe about it, I would always just sort of shake my head. In this case, Jesus used the disciples' argument as a teaching moment for them. 
He didn't get upset or overreact. He called them together. And he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now just let that phrase rest on your ears a minute. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. All too often, we chase after things that we think will give us position, prominence, power. All too often, we're so, build, build, so busy building our own little kingdoms that we don't stop and consider just what it means to follow Jesus for the sake of his kingdom. Because being saved by Jesus is one thing, and we will certainly follow him in the resurrection if that's the case. But he didn't just die and walk out of the tomb on Sunday morning so that we can fly off and live on a cloud somewhere when we die. We are meant to be made like him now in this life. And if we step back and look at Jesus, what do we see? I think Paul described it well in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. We said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't have to become one of us. He didn't have to become a servant of his own creation, but he did. And his servanthood led him to the cross, which is why he called anyone who wanted to follow him to do the same, to pick up their cross daily and follow him, to sacrifice their lives. When we confess Jesus as Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit, not just as our insurance portfolio against going to hell when we die, but so that we will be transformed now, so that we will really be like Jesus. Picking up the story in verse 42, Jesus continued his thought from verse 37 concerning those who receive a child in his name, telling the disciples, not to be the cause of temptation for those who come after them. And Jesus said some fairly strange things about amputation. It seems that if our hands, feet, or eyes cause us to <coughs> sin, we are supposed to get rid of them in order to enter life. And that's the language that Jesus used, to enter life. Now, I've heard this discussed in terms of heaven and hell so many times, I can't keep count, but I don't think that's really what Jesus meant here. Let's look close at what he said. We've already seen that the kingdom of God is all about casting out demons and healing and forgiveness, right? That's what we learned earlier in the story. These are all positive actions about mending and making things right and whole. So how can heaven be heaven if we are missing a hand or a foot or an eye? Was 
was what was Jesus really saying here? Was that what he was getting at? He was referring to the kingdom of God being established right then and there. So how do those things go together? I think he was referring to it in terms of sacrifice, in terms of the things that might keep us from being the servants that we need to be. Think of it like this. If there are parts of you pulling you towards sin instead of of pulling you toward servanthood, you are going to end up in a bad place, right? But Jesus wasn't really talking about eternal separation from God here, even though the terminology that we read in the English says hell. Bad choices may lead us there in time. We know that, right? But Jesus was speaking in present tense, right then and there. He used the word Gehenna, which was actually the name of the desecrated and defiled valley outside the city wall of Jerusalem, where they burned trash and sometimes even dead bodies and unclaimed criminals and things like that. And it had been desecrated because a long, long time before that, it had been a uh, sacrificial altar to a pagan god named Molech, I believe. And they would sacrifice all sorts of things there, including their children. And so when Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jews, when they took it over, they, they considered that valley desecrated and defiled, and it just became where they dumped trash. They wouldn't spend life, they wouldn't live out there, they wouldn't engage out there. Jesus was using this vivid word picture that they would have fully understood. Because in that day and time, thieves could be executed. And if unclaimed, they would be tossed onto the burning mound in Gehenna, outside the city wall, where the fire burned day and night. No one wanted to end up there. Not just dead, but humiliated and dishonored. Not given a proper funeral or burial, which is a very important thing. Just tossed onto the fire like any other refuse. This doesn't lessen the meaning or the impact of what Jesus was saying. If anything, we can draw similarly vivid pictures in our minds about the dramatic difference between being a servant and being selfish like the disciples who wanted the top spot. As Jesus made it clear, don't give in to that. Because it's not the way of the kingdom and it's not the way to experience life beyond measure. So don't be the hand or foot that gets cut off. Don't be the eye that gets plucked out. Instead, be a servant to all. In verse 49, Jesus said that everyone gets salted with fire. And that's another strange sort of saying, right? So what does it mean? This is another place where misunderstandings can cloud the real meaning. In other places, we have seen salt referred to as a preservative or even in uh, some cases a seasoning. And those analogies are generally applied to us as we follow Jesus being salt in the world. But that's not the case here. In the Greek, the word Mark used for everyone is reflexive. And that means it's referring back to the people in the statements before it. 
the folks who continued serving self instead of others, those who refused to follow Jesus serving as he served, those who would have been better off removing what tempted them but instead gave into it, those who ended up in the burning trash heap are no longer salt in terms of being preservative or seasoning. Their salt is burned up by the fire of Gehenna, and it's useless. How many of us want to be useless? How many of us want to end up humiliated and dishonored by our sin because we kept on and kept on and never confessed and never turned away? And yet how many of us keep giving in to our own desires instead of trying to meet the needs of others like Jesus did? Are we seeing the bigger picture here? Not only did Jesus want his followers to stop fussing and arguing over frivolous stuff, he wanted them to become servants in his likeness. He wanted them to be sacrificial with their very lives. And that brings up some questions as well. Like, how are we living? Are we living sacrificially? Are we serving others with our lives? Do our lives look like the life of Jesus? And if not, what's holding us back? And how long will it take for us to repent and turn toward God on this? Skipping ahead to chapter 10, we see what might seem like an unrelated story at first, but in truth, it's really just more of the same story. As Jesus was heading off on another preaching tour, a man ran up to him and asked what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus answered him by listing off several of the commandments about how we are supposed to live. And the man claimed to have followed them all. So Jesus gave him one more. He told the man to go, sell everything he had, and then come and follow. Sacrifice and servanthood. It seems pretty straightforward that you can be a really decent person like this man and follow all the rules, but still not live a sacrificial servant life. So Jesus was offering this guy an open invitation to enter his kingdom right then and there, as he does with everyone. But the guy went away sorrowful because he cared more about his stuff, his possessions. At which point Jesus looked at his disciples and basically said, entering the kingdom of God isn't easy for rich folks. In fact, it's difficult for anyone. Now, none of us probably think we are rich. And by the standard of our country, most of us probably aren't. If we stack our bank account up against Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, we're going to look really poor by comparison. But that's the wrong standard. What happens when we compare ourselves to the people living in places like the Orangi Shanty Town in Karachi, Pakistan, where nearly 1.5 million people live without electricity or running water? We take these things for granted to the point where losing 
them over the past week has sent many Texans spiraling. And I'm not making light of it. It can be devastating to lose power and water. So imagine what it's like not having them at all. Most of us have what is known as disposable income. Even those of us who live in debt still have money for things we don't absolutely need. What if Jesus showed up and looked us in the eyes and said, I've got a job for you, but you have to leave your smartphone behind? Might be tough for some of us, right? I know it would be for me. Or what if he asked us to sell our TVs and DVD players? Would that hit home with some of us? What if he asked us to sell off all our guitars, Cadillacs, and hillbilly music? <laughs> right? I'm being silly, but the point is still clear. What do we care about more than sacrificially serving him and others for his sake? What needs to get cut off in our life so that we will be servants instead of giving in to selfishness and sin? And what's interesting about this passage is that like the first one, Jesus wasn't really referring to heaven and hell here. When Jesus talked about entering the kingdom of God, he meant the living, breathing kingdom of God right then and there with him. We know this because when the disciples questioned him on this stuff, and Peter even tried to act like he had done everything right, Jesus told them that those who lived sacrificially would receive a hundredfold now in this time. He then went on to say that in the age to come, they would have eternal life. So it's connected. But that means he was distinguishing between the two. The kingdom was already underway. It wasn't off in the future. And the fact is that it's still active, even now. It's alive and well. Wherever there are those who love God and follow Jesus, living sacrificially as servants of all, being comfortably last in a world all cut up and trying to be first. And that's why we pray for God's kingdom to come and will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying and longing for God's kingdom to replace our own. That might be why a lot of us don't pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't want to give up control. We are all wrapped up in our own trivial pursuits. We like to think of heaven as somewhere way off in the future, far away, and we will be all about Jesus then. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He wanted the disciples to give up their vain pursuits and be sacrificial servants right then and there. And he wants the same from us right here and now. When Jesus talked, the idea was always a current, present one. The kingdom is at hand, he said. The kingdom is already among you. The kingdom is in your midst even now, he told them. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish is not some far off heaven. It's about heaven and earth being remade and brought back together right now. 
It's not complete. It's not what I'm saying. But it's real. It's already happening. Which means it's a reality that we can be a part of every moment of every day. Whenever we make the choice to give the Holy Spirit control and get lined up with the will of God, that's when we will experience the kingdom of God. That may happen at worship, and hopefully it does, but it can happen anywhere. It may happen at home or at work or when you're out on a walk or at a restaurant. It becomes visible wherever and whenever we stop trying to hang on to control. That's what Jesus was talking about. And that's why he said, whoever gave up those things would receive a hundredfold now in this time. See, he was referring to the present kingdom. Because in the present kingdom, wherever we go, the believers we meet are our brothers and sisters. Wherever kingdom people live and exercise kingdom principles, that's kingdom land. And we belong there. It could be right here in Marathon. I pray that it is every day. It could be somewhere else in Texas or the U.S. It could be in South America or Russia or China or Africa. The kingdom is global. It's bigger than anything any kingdom that we know about in this world. Wherever Jesus is king in the hearts of the people, the kingdom is present. It's only difficult to enter when we allow other things to get in the way. To be what we want instead of what Jesus wants. And even when those other things seem religious or spiritual, like being the greatest in the kingdom, like wanting to rule at Jesus' right hand or left hand, wanting to be number one in the kingdom, any of those kinds of things. In both chapter 9, verse 35, and chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus made it clear that the first would be last and the last would be first. That his kingdom would be built on sacrifice and service instead of selfishness. Are we ready for that? Ready to commit our lives to that as our driving principle? Ready to give up chasing after our own little kingdoms and the ways that we want things to be? Even ones that sort of pretend that holiness? Are we ready to give ourselves completely over to God's transformation? Because what Jesus said applies to us right here and now, just as it did for the disciples then. And we know that some of them still didn't get it because a few verses later, James and John, they asked Jesus to sit at his right and left hand. They still wanted the top spots. The rest of the disciples heard it and then they got upset, clearly showing that they still cared about it too. And in Mark 10, 42 through 45, which we didn't read, but Jesus addressed this whole thing again, this time in terms of how different the kingdom would be from the, his kingdom would be from the kingdoms of this world. 
Here's what it says. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Until we are ready for our lives to look like that, we will continue to miss God's kingdom in our present circumstances. But we can always turn away from the temptations that we face and live by serving instead of sinning. We can always lean into the way of Jesus and let his kingdom be made a reality in our lives right here and now because the Holy Spirit is willing and able to make the changes that need to be made inside of us to eradicate the selfish darkness that grows there and fill us with light and love so that we can be who we are called to be citizens of God's kingdom and agents of hope and peace in this crazy world. Sacrificial servants who live for Jesus instead of ourselves. We just have to be willing. The Lord will do the rest. The world is in desperate need of what only Jesus can offer. Are we ready to become the sacrificial servants, so that they may know him. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, we come before you. Your word rests on our hearts and minds. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would take it, make it grow inside of us. Make it become alive, even if that means bugging us and pestering us with it. Father, may we be drawn into your kingdom in such a way that being sacrificial servants is, is really just sort of who we are that it's not a struggle, that it's not a fight, that we're not clamoring for our own ways, but that we're willing to give in to yours. And that that would show through us into the lives of those around us as we serve them. It would cause them to be curious, that they'd be drawn to your love and your grace and your mercy. Pray this for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name.